scripture passage for Pastor Charlie's message this morning is Acts 20, verses 17 through 38. Acts twenty seventeen. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God And of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's go before the Lord and ask his help now. Oh my God and my Father, I pray that you would use your word by your Holy Spirit to be fuel and fire upon your church, upon your people. I pray that you would focus us, Lord. I pray that you would help us to see the purpose for which you've given us life on this earth. Lord, you've put us here to accomplish a mission, and if it wasn't for that, you would just take us home to yourself, because you have one salvation for everybody who believes in your name, and that salvation is an eternal fact. But you've left us here, Lord, to complete a mission, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. And so I ask you, Lord, by your word and by your Holy Spirit, to focus us, to fuel us, to fire us up to do the things that you have called to do. Lord, this is your work in us. It's not our work for you. So my prayer is that you would take these ancient stories and build in this people a current story. And I pray that we would learn to live for the glory of your name and the blessing of our city and indeed the blessing of the nations. And Lord, I want to thank you for what you will do through this word and through your word in a larger sense in the life of this church because you promise that your word always accomplishes the purposes for which it was sent. And so, Father, we now relax ourselves in your work. 
We now humble ourselves before your word, and we ask you to speak to us by the word of God and by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, we give you thanks for what you will do. Amen. It was the evening of the first day of the week, which is to say that it was a Sunday evening. And Paul and his companions had gathered with the church in the city of Troas to break bread and to enjoy the Lord's Supper and to otherwise worship the risen Lord Jesus Christ. If we can go to the map here, you'll see the city of Troas there on the left side of the Aegean Sea, just north of Ephesus there. Pretty much everybody who was at that meeting had worked all day long. In our day, Sunday is not a work day, but in their day, Sunday was a work day. It was genuinely the first day of the week. And so even though they were at the worship service, they were all pretty much tired. But it was a privilege to have this great man of God, the Apostle Paul, in their midst. And much more so, it was a privilege to worship the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so they pressed through the internal and the external difficulties of pulling off a worship service, and they gathered in a third-story room of a tenement building in the city of Troas, and they began to worship Jesus Christ with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. As the sun went down, they began to light candles so that they could see. And when the time was right, the Apostle Paul rose up to testify to the gospel of the grace of God to preach about Jesus Christ. He was essentially giving a communion devotional, but as we'll see here in a few minutes, it was a very unusual devotional, that's for sure. Just a few weeks earlier, Paul had been in the city of Ephesus, which you can see there also on the western side of the Aegean Sea. He had spent three years of his life in that city. But you know that he was compelled to move and to move and to go and to go and to preach the gospel everywhere that he went. And so after three years of very fruitful ministry where Paul himself said that everybody in Asia had heard the gospel, it was time for him to move on. But you may remember that as he prepared to leave the city, an uproar broke out in the city and a riot almost occurred. By the grace of God, the riot was quelled and Paul was able to get out of the city and go up to the north and he went through Macedonia and he made his way down to what is called Achaia there on the map, what what Luke calls Greece and what we normally call Greece and eventually Paul ended up staying in Corinth for about three months. He was there to strengthen the church but more so he was there to sort of wrap up some issues that he'd been struggling with through through with the Corinthians for about the last two years and we read about these things in his letters. But at about the three-month place, he learned of a plot. The Jews wanted to kill him, and they were very serious about it. And so rather than submit to their desires, he hightailed it out of town, and he went back up through Macedonia, and he came to the city of Troas, where he had been before, and where now he gathered with these precious believers in a time of worship, in a time of breaking bread, in a time of the Lord's Supper. He knew that his time was short, and he knew that he would likely never be in that city again, He would likely never see those people again. And so he determined to meet with them and to preach the word of God to them and invest as much of the glory and grace of Jesus Christ as he could possibly do in a seven-day period. Luke tells us that that's as as much time as he spent there. He spent a week there. And at the end of that week, it was the first day of the week, it was a Sunday evening, and they gathered there to worship Jesus and hear the word of God. From what we know of the culture and the practice of that time, Paul probably began to speak in the early evening, say around 6 or 7 p.m., and you'll notice there in the beginning of chapter 20 that Luke says that Paul continued in his speech all the way until midnight. So yes, Paul preached for five or six hours nonstop. The next time you get tempted to grumble in your heart about how long the sermons are here at GCF, just remember this worship service at at Troas. Paul preached hour upon hour upon hour until now it was midnight. Now to be fair, the reason that he preached so long was not just to hear himself speak, but it was because he knew he was going to be leaving the next morning and he knew his time was short. He knew that these precious souls needed to hear the word of God more than they needed anything and he longed with all of his heart to invest the gospel into their lives. As the service went on and on and on, though, the room got warmer and it got stuffier. You you can imagine how that would be. They're packed into a tiny room, and it just was getting hot, and it was getting really hard to stay awake. 
just imagine some of the summer meetings we've had here in Hanke when it's so warm and I'm only preaching for 40 minutes and I'm looking out and seeing people struggling just to stay awake and feeling bad for you. And sometimes, to be honest with you, when I've been up here preaching and it's so hot, I'm struggling to stay awake. It'll be horrible to fall asleep in the middle of your own sermon, right? But this is what was happening in the room. It's just real life, right? These are real people gathered in a real room. They're getting tired, but they're trying to pay attention. They want to hear the word of God. One of the young men who was there was named Eutychus, and he was sitting on the windowsill. He was either there to get some air or just because there was literally nowhere else to sit in the room, and I tend to think it was the latter. He was probably sitting up there just to make some room, and he's fighting against his natural desire for sleep, and unfortunately, around midnight, he lost the battle, and instead of falling down in toward the room, he sadly fell out of the window and tumbled down three stories and smacked right on the ground. I had a nephew who fell out of a two-story building when he was about three years old, and I remembered the panic that was in my family's hearts when we had heard what had happened, so I could feel just a little bit of what it might have been like to have seen Eutychus tumble out the window and to hear his body thud on the ground. And I don't know if it was orderly or not, I think probably not, but the people rushed out of the room and went downstairs and went to where Eutychus was to see if he was alive and to attend to his wounds. And although the ESV says that they took him up as dead, So it kind of leaves a little bit of ambiguity. Was he actually dead or was he just knocked out or whatever? Luke in the Greek language actually says it much stronger than this. And Luke claims very plainly in Greek that he was dead. And remember that Luke, the one who wrote Acts, was actually there this particular night. He was at this worship service. He saw what happened. And he was trained as a medical doctor. He knew the difference between a guy who was knocked out and a guy who was dead. And Luke plainly wrote, Eutychus was dead. By the grace of God, Paul also went downstairs, and just like Elijah before him, and Elisha before him, and Jesus before him, Paul bent over the young man and began to pray, and in faith he looked up to the people and just said, take courage, his life is still in him. And lo and behold, Eutychus came to life. This was a miracle, beloved. Again, in the ESV, I don't know what translations all of you have, but it's a little bit of ambiguity. Was this a miracle or did he just sort of pass out and come back? But again, in the Greek, it's pretty plain. He died and he came back to life. And as I have pondered this over the last week, I've thought what a miracle it was that Paul was up in that upper room for hour upon hour testifying to the gospel of the grace of God, the centerpiece of which is a Savior that rose from the dead. And instead of letting this be a theoretical presentation, God allowed a young man to die and to be raised again right in the sight of the people. Talk about a confirmation of the gospel. God never performs miracles to put on a show. He just doesn't do it. When I see these TV preachers trying to impress people with all that stuff, one of the clear things that come to my mind is that they're not doing the works of God because God is not interested in putting on a circus. He's just not. God will perform miracles, though, still to this day, to show his love to his people and to testify to the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. And this is what he did indeed. Paul was preaching and God was confirming. I don't know if Eutychus had to die and be raised that day or not. I don't know God's will in that way. All I know is that Eutychus did die and God did raise him up. And it was a powerful confirmation of all that Paul was saying. And with this, finally came to the end his communion devotional. This was an unusual communion devotional. It was about six hours long, and a guy was raised from the dead. And then they all went back upstairs, and they just continued the service. It says that they broke bread, they ate together, they took the Lord's Supper, and guess what? Paul just started preaching again. By the time he was preaching, it had to have been one in the morning, maybe 1.30 in the morning, and he preached and preached and preached, Luke says, until daylight broke. He preached until time forced them to end the worship service. Paul had to catch a ship, and the people had to go back to work. They had stayed up all night long worshiping Jesus and watching miracles, but now it was time to go back to work. God had moved powerfully among this people, and so they escorted Paul down to his ship where he boarded, and as for them, they rejoiced in the power of the grace of God that had just been manifest in their midst over the last 12 hours. They heard the gospel preached, they saw the gospel demonstrated, and at the end of the day, the bottom line is they were left to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul and his companions had boarded the ship and and, and, uh, continued their journey, and the church of uh, Troas rejoiced, 
Paul set his face like flint, just like Jesus Christ, to go to Jerusalem. We'll talk a little bit more about this next week of why he felt so compelled to go. But in his heart, Paul just had to get to Jerusalem. So he left from Troas by ship and started his way down the coast to get to Jerusalem. He wanted to stop and see the elders of Ephesus. He wanted to talk to them, but he didn't want to get stuck in the city. He was concerned that if he actually went there, that he would get caught in fellowship and that he would stay a week and then maybe a month and then three months and then maybe a year. And he just didn't feel like he had that kind of time and he just didn't want to get stuck. And I don't think his concern was so much the people uh, making him stay as it was his own heart. I think if he went and saw those beloved people, he would not want to leave. So he said, forget it. I can't go to the city. I'm going to go instead down to this little place called Miletus, which you can see there just below Ephesus. It was located 30 miles to the south, and Paul docked there, and he sent his, his companions to go up to Ephesus and to get the elders and to bring them back to him. Now, it was a 30-mile journey as the crow flies, but it actually would have taken several days to get there and back, so this whole transaction took like a week. It took a week for Paul's companions to walk up to Ephesus to inform the elders, to gather them, and to walk back down to Miletus. And when they got there, Paul began to share with them the things that were on his heart. And if you look again at chapter 20, verse 18, let's just work again through what Paul said to the elders bit by bit and talk about what he has to say to them. Chapter 20, verse 18, you yourselves know, elders, how I lived among you from the the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think with a smile on his face and with deep love in his heart, Paul began by drawing attention to the people's, to, to his way of life before the people. And the main thing that he wanted to draw to their attention is that he had lived a humble life before them. He had not been arrogant. He had not been self-promoting. He had not been self-centered. You see, in his day, there were teachers that made their living by going from one city to the next and promoting themselves under the guise of promoting whatever they were promoting. And in this way, they made money. In this way, some of them became very rich. And I, what I hear Paul saying is, you all know that I did not live like that. You know that I had a pure heart toward the gospel, that I had a pure heart toward you. I came not to promote myself. I came to promote the Lord Jesus Christ. I was humble before you. And one side of my humility before you was all the tears that you saw me shed. Now when I hear Paul say that, I get in my mind prayer meetings. I have been in prayer meetings with powerful men of God who had a heart for their city and I've listened to powerful men of God weep and weep and weep for lost people to come to belief in Christ and for believers to grow up in their faith in Christ. And this is what I see when I hear Paul saying what he said. And I think the Ephesian elders would have remembered meeting after meeting and prayer meeting after prayer meeting where they saw Paul pleading with God in tears for the souls of people in the city of Ephesus. Remember, that city was filled with magic. It was filled with satanic arts. It was filled with the lostness that indeed fills this world. And Paul just had a broken heart for these people. And they could testify that for three years he wept over the city. He was a prophet of God, to be sure, and a powerful one at that, but he was a humble prophet. He was a tear-filled prophet. He was a compassionate, loving prophet because he had inside of himself the Spirit of Christ. And with that, Paul then draws his elders' attention to his manner of teaching because even though he was humble, Paul wants to say also that he was bold. He was not afraid to give to them anything that would be profitable to them through his teaching, even if it was hard to hear, right? Paul would preach the easy things, the comfortable things, but Paul would also preach the hard things, the challenging things, the cutting things, the confronting things. 
Paul would preach the love of God in Christ, and he would preach the wrath of God in Christ. Paul would preach about the goodness of God to his people, and he would preach about the massive seriousness of sin and the need to repent. Paul was not afraid to preach anything that was profitable to the people, and he did so both to Jews and to Greeks. And you know just from reading Acts that he did so at the risk of his life repeatedly. But before God, he was not afraid. He called people to repentance. He called people to live by faith in Jesus Christ. And all of these elders would have to rise and say, Amen, Paul, you did just that. You were a humble man and you were a bold man. You were a prophet with tears, but you were absolutely willing to declare to us the word of God even when it was hard to hear because it was profitable for us. And I would just suggest to you as a people and to my own heart as a preacher that this is what real love looks like. Real love looks like the kind of humility that would cry tears for people, but that would also tell the truth to people. I'm just remembering right now when my brother Ralph died. He was 10 years older than me, and he had a brain aneurysm and died very suddenly. It was shocking. This was a few years ago. Some of you may remember it. Quickly, I had to jump on a plane and go out there, and I'm like the only believer in the family, and not to mention that I'm a pastor, right? So I know that at some point I'm going to have the floor, And I'm racking my brain how to be able to say to my family, like, I can't falsely comfort them and tell them that my brother's in a better place because I don't believe that he is. He lived like the devil, and if the Bible means anything at all, he's going to eat the fruit of his way of life. And I know that. It grieves my heart, but I know that to be true. So I couldn't falsely comfort my family, so what should I do? And without going into all the details, I'll just tell you that God gave me uh, all the wisdom and courage that I needed to tell the truth to my family without being rude and disrespectful to my family. This is what love looks like. Praying. I remember being on the plane weeping for my family. It's like, how, Lord? How can I tell them the truth? They need to know the truth. Our brother just died. It's like life and death is on the line. I pled for them with tears. I remember stopping in Las Vegas and just being in the waiting room, just praying and pleading for my family. But when the time came and God opened a door, and he did open a door, one of my brothers literally said to me in front of about 30 people, he said, what's the gospel? What do you mean by that? There was the door. And God gave me a chance to walk through it. And I told him the truth. I did not falsely comfort them. And I stand before God, innocent of the blood of my family. Beloved, that's what love looks like. And that's, what, that's the grace that God had put upon Paul and the elders of Ephesus knew it. He was a humble man. He was a bold man. So look at verse 22 and see what he has to say then. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So please notice a couple things in this section. First, Paul is going to Jerusalem because he feels constrained to go to Jerusalem. The word in Greek literally means to be bound, like with a chain or like to be imprisoned. It means that the Holy Spirit is making him go. Of course, Paul wills to do the will of God, but the point to be made here is that Paul is not going to Jerusalem just because he has a fleshly desire. He has an inner compulsion that is actually coming from the Holy Spirit, and he must go to Jerusalem, just like Jesus Christ just like his Lord and Savior. It's not as though the Lord had, 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 had just fleshly thoughts about Jerusalem. He was compelled by the will of God to go there, and now so was Paul. And he needed these brothers to know that. He needed to know that he was willing to go and suffer anything for the sake of the name. He did not know what awaited him when he got there, but he knew that he would suffer when he got there. And for the glory of Christ and by the grace of Christ, he was willing to suffer anything. He needed them to know that. And he needed these precious brothers to know that they would probably never see him again. Second thing to notice is that by the grace of God, Paul did not value his life or even his comfort. And I'll tell you, as an American who loves my comfort, that really speaks to me because he's not just speaking theoretically. Page by page by page on the book of Acts, 
And even in his letters, you can see Paul sacrificing comfort, not just for the sake of sacrifice, but for the sake of the glory of Christ. Paul simply wanted to finish the course that God had given to him, no matter what the cost, no matter what the consequence. He wanted to fulfill his ministry. He wanted to put it in his words to testify to the gospel of the grace of God wherever he was sent that God might be glorified and people might be saved. And you know that when he did that, he paid a high price, right? You can remember just from the stories in Acts that when he boldly proclaimed the gospel, people often imprisoned him or beat him up or threw stones at him or left him as dead. Not to mention, he says later in another place, he went through shipwrecks and sleepless nights and hard work and so many sufferings, not just for the sake of the sufferings, but for the sake of the glory of God and the salvation of precious souls. And beloved, I pray, I know as I've been pondering Paul's life here, I just found myself praying this week that I would be that surrendered to the will of God in Christ. It's not so much about suffering. It's not like I wanna get up tomorrow morning and say, geez, how can I suffer today? But what it is about is being willing to die to my will that I can do God's will, and if that brings suffering into my life, then so be it. It's worth the price. If that brings suffering to my life, all it does is unite me with the suffering of Christ. Oh, that we would be surrendered to the will of God in the way that the precious Apostle Paul was surrendered to the will of God. That we would die to the American dream and every other fleshly dream. That we might live to the dream of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is a much greater dream and an everlasting dream that will never fade away. Amen? Believe me, I love America. I'm not an anti-American. I appreciate God for living in this country, but the day will come when the kingdom of the United States of America will fall and be no more. But that's not true of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we will live for his kingdom, then we will live for a king who will, in fact, live forever. And I pray that along with Paul, we will learn to lay it all down and serve King Jesus with all of our lives that our only ambition would be to finish the course, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I'll come back to that at the end, but for now, let's look at verse 25. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all. Why? For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. He again returns to this balance between proclamation and humility. So now in this section, Paul is turning to the elders themselves, and he's speaking directly to elders. And I just want to pull out a few lessons there, the first one of which is really for only those elders, but the rest of which are for all of us. First of all, Paul informs them that he w- they would not see his face again and that he was innocent of their blood because he did not shrink back from preaching to them. And the one thing that I do want to say about that is that as you pray for us as elders of this church, as you pray for Kevin and Mike and Jordan and myself, one of the very top things that I would hope you pray for us is that we would have humility and also boldness to proclaim to you the whole counsel of the word of God so that when we answer to Jesus Christ for our ministry in this city, that we will be innocent of the blood of the people in this city. Do you remember what God said to the prophet Ezekiel? He told him, Ezekiel, if you say the things that I give you to say, you are innocent of the people's blood. But if I tell you to say something and you refuse to say it, if you shrink back in fear, then their blood is on your head. And I think Paul is drawing on that language to say, I am innocent of your blood, Ephesians. And and as one of your elders, I would ask you to pray that kind of thing for us. Not that we would arrogantly preach the word of God to you, but that we would fear God and not fear you. 
that we would preach faithfully all of the Word of God, warning you and encouraging you everywhere the Bible warns you and encourages you so that we will be free of the blood of the people in this church and in this city. Oh, that we would be humble and faithful preachers of the Word of God. Beloved, we are not responsible for the decisions that you make before God. But we, your elders, are responsible to declare to you the counsel of God. And believe me, it's a harder job than it might seem. So please, I beg of you, pray for us. How many pastors do you know that have slowly but surely gone astray? And next thing you know, they're just not, rather than teaching the word of God, they're talking about, you know, 10 ways to improve your life or whatever. They've strayed from declaring the whole counsel of God, either out of fear of people or out of the desire for things that God does not exactly desire. So please, I beg of you, pray for us in this way. Second thing, Paul commanded the elders to pay careful attention to themselves and to the flock in that order. And elders, I call upon you especially to listen now. Pay careful attention to yourself, microscopic attention to yourself, and then also to the flock. The Holy Spirit had made them to be overseers in the flock. They did not appoint themselves, and even though there was a process in that church that, by which they were appointed that Paul himself was a part of, ultimately it was the Holy Spirit who made these elders to be elders, and every true elder and every true church around the world, the same could be said of them. We were appointed by the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, our work is eminently holy. And it is incumbent upon us, first of all, to seek our personal holiness so that we will be free from ourselves and available to God to glorify his name and serve the flock. So elders of GCF, hear the word of the Lord. Pay careful attention to yourselves and also to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. In the flesh, I can tell you from lots of experience that there are days where that just feels like such a burden, but that's just because at the moment you're living in your flesh. In the Spirit, this is among the greatest of privileges. Even when the elders have to suffer for the sake of the name and the good of the flock, God still works that together for the good. So please, beloved, pray for us. Pray that we would care for our lives. Pray that we would watch our holiness and pray that we would love you, that we would love this flock, that we would serve this flock. Please, I beg of you, pray for us in this way. We need your prayers. The third thing Paul said to the elders was that after his departure, fierce wolves would come in who would give no heed to the flock and would seek to deceive them and destroy them. And the way they would do it is through teaching. I hope you notice that. Teaching is imminently important in the life of the church, and the way that churches get led astray, the the way that the flock of God gets led astray is almost always through false teaching. And Paul, with grief in his heart, even had to say to these elders who he loved that even among some of you, some of you are going to rise up, and you're going to be deceived, and you're going to deceive the flock, and you're going to draw some people after you, and it's going to be tragic. And so I think what he was really saying to all of them is this, carefully teach the entire counsel of the word of God to your flock. Carefully teach. This does at least two things, maybe three things. First of all, when elders are teaching the whole counsel of God, guess what? They get to learn the whole counsel of God. I've learned more through being a preacher than any other discipleship program I've ever been in. Because week by week, I have to read the word of God very carefully so that I can handle it well before you. So the more your elders know the counsel of God, the better off the whole church is. Second thing is, the more the elders know the whole counsel of God, they can preach the whole counsel of God to the church. And the third thing is, as elders preach the whole counsel of God, guess what it does? It equips the people so that they're not easily deceived. Amen? If I started going off in some Joel Osteen direction, would you all tolerate that from me? You should fire me, or at least rebuke me. Please threaten me. Give, me. give me a little time to repent. But if I don't repent, I'm being dead serious. Get me out of here. Do not tolerate false teaching. You don't have to tolerate false teaching. Your ultimate authority is not your elders. Your ultimate authority is your elder, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the king of this flock. He's the shepherd of this flock. And as the elders faithfully teach the Bible, guess what? They equip you to submit to that shepherd 
and to keep your under-shepherds accountable. This is, I think, primarily what Paul was pleading with these elders to do. He's like, listen, deceivers are going to come, so don't be deceived. Know the word of God. Preach the word of God. Live by the word of God, O flock of God. Look now with me at verse 32. Let's see how Paul closes this out. And now... I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified, in other words, made holy. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I think, again, Paul has in mind these people who would go from city to city and make their living basically off the backs of people, teaching whatever they would teach and and making their money in illegitimate ways. And Paul was saying, I didn't do it that way. In fact, later he wrote to the Corinthians, he said, I had every right to take money from you, and I didn't do it because I didn't want to pollute the gospel of the grace of God. That's what he's saying to the Ephesians here. My conscience is clean, my head is clean before the Lord. When Paul had finished his message, he did to me a very moving thing. He got down on his knees, and he just began to pray with these precious brothers. Please get the picture in your mind that these guys were elders of the church in Ephesus, but... When Paul arrived in Ephesus, there were no genuine believers there except his two friends, Priscilla and Aquila. Paul most likely led every one of these elders to Christ. He was their spiritual father. And Paul had most likely trained them. And Paul had most likely appointed them as elders. So it's not like they had a superficial relationship. They were very close. This was their spiritual father. This was their father in the ministry. And now he had just told them many things, but he had also said they were never going to see his face again. So as he sat there on his knees, certainly weeping in prayer for his precious brothers, they gathered around him and they hugged him and they kissed him. And the way the Greek reads, it means they were like kissing and kissing and kissing him because of these words that they would never see his face again. But alas, they were resigned to the will of God, and so when their prayer time was done, they arose and they escorted Paul down to the shipyard where he boarded and went on his way, after which they went back to Ephesus and continued their work. And by the way, if you want to know what happened to the church of Ephesus, there are three other places where the Bible explicitly talks about it after Paul's ministry. First Timothy and Second Timothy were written to the guy who was pastoring the church in Ephesus after Paul, to Timothy. So in some ways, First and Second Timothy are like Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3. And, and I would really encourage you sometime to think about that church and to read those letters carefully with a view of like what was happening in that church and what God was doing in that church. And then the other place is in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, where all those letters to the churches are written. Ephesus is one of the churches that gets a letter directly from Jesus through the hand of the apostle John, who, by the way, Church history says that probably the Apostle John served as the shepherd over Ephesus for a season. So this word actually did powerful things in the life of this church. After Paul was done and after they parted, it's not like the Spirit of God parted. The Spirit of God continued to hover over and cover and protect that church. And to this day, it's more of a remnant now than a strong, thriving church, but there's still a church in the city of Ephesus to this day. This is by the gospel of the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul departed from there, and he eventually made his way back to Syria, and this time he landed in the city of Tyre, which you can see sort of there in the middle, just underneath Sidon. And not being one to waste a lot of time, Paul found the believers that were there, and he spent seven days with them. And the one thing that I want to draw out is that while they were there, the believers kept gathering around him and pleading with him not to go to Jerusalem. And the Bible says that they were pleading with him by the Spirit. So I've kind of found this confusing. Paul feels compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, and the believers gather around him, compelled by the Spirit to tell him not to go to Jerusalem. Now what's going on there, I'll say something about in a minute, but just get that picture in your mind. They're around him, they're praying for him, they're begging him, don't go, but he is compelled to go. He has to go. So when the time was right, they escorted him down to the coast and he boards a ship. He goes to the city of Ptolemaeus and then he eventually ends up in the city of Caesarea, which you can see right there, where Cornelius and all of his friends were saved and where also that man named Philip who who won the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ back in chapter 8. 
Philip had landed in the city of Caesarea. Now, he had lived there for 20 years now. And he was one of four leaders of the church in Caesarea. And he had four daughters who had the gift of prophecy. This means that they had the gift of discerning the will of God into the future. And also, they had the gift of understanding the Word of God and applying it to the present. So I want to pause there for just a second. And I want to speak to the women of our church Because I think this is an extremely important example, just a little tiny part of a story that Paul passes by quickly, but from which we should really learn something. I think the Bible is very clear that women should not be elders in the life of the church. But please don't hear that to mean that women don't have significant functioning in the life of the church because they do. Women who have teaching gifts should teach. Women who have prophetic gifts should prophesy. Women who have any gift should use their gift for the glory of God and the common good. Like all of us, women should minister with humility and submission to God, to the elders of the church, and to their husbands if they are indeed married. But women of GCF, if God has gifted you, then fan your gifts into flame. We need your gifts If you have a gift of insight, tell us what you're seeing. If you have a a gift of teaching, then teach. If you have a gift of prophecy, then prophesy. Not to exalt yourself, not to be a feminist, but to be a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let him do in you and through you whatever he wants to do. And oh church, I pray that we would have a heart to receive that ministry. Women are not second class citizens in the kingdom of God or in the life of the church. We each have roles. But we do have roles, and women have significant roles. And may you play them for the glory of God and the good of us all. While Paul was in Caesarea, another prophet named Agabus came, and he took Paul's belt off. I think that in itself would be a little strange. Be like, I love you, man, but I have this thing called a social envelope. Please leave my belt alone. One day I was at a meeting of pastors, and this guy, I was up talking to him, and he walked like right up next to me like this, and then he grabbed the zipper on my coat and just started zipping it up and down while he was talking to me. And I had just met this guy, and I was extremely comfortable, uncomfortable. I cannot remember a word that guy said, because I was just like, please stop that, you know? But he was an older man, a wiser man. I just let him do his thing, and then it was over. I was like, whoa, no thank you. So I think if someone came and took my belt off, I would feel very uncomfortable. That's what happened. And Agabus took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and his own feet and said, such, says the Holy Spirit, is going to happen to the owner of this belt when he goes to Jerusalem. The Jews are going to bind him. They're going to hand him over to the Gentiles. In other words, he's warning Paul. And the people there, just like the people in Tyre, were very concerned by, about this and about Paul. And so they began pleading with him, please don't go, please don't go, please don't go. But Paul said to them, please stop this, you're breaking my heart. And the people finally said, all right, well then the Lord's will be done. And they let Paul go. But I want to talk just for a second about how we should understand this. Because this really confused me. Like the Holy Spirit is compelling Paul to go and it seems like the Holy Spirit is compelling his people to try to stop him at every place, you know? So what's going on? And at the end of the day, after praying and thinking about this quite a bit, I think it's a pretty simple thing actually. I think the Holy Spirit was doing two things. One, he's testing Paul's calling. I think he knew that Although Paul had suffered a lot through his life, what he was about to go through in Jerusalem and then in Rome was going to be harder than anything that had come before. And one of the hardest aspects of it was Paul was going to be imprisoned and unable to travel about and preach anymore. Just think about what you know about Paul. Even before he was a believer, he was going from one city to another to do the things that God was calling him to do. This guy was always on the move. Go, go, preach, go, preach, go. And now he would be constrained in prison for years. And I think the Spirit was lovingly saying, Paul, are you sure? This is my will for you, but are you willing to give your consent? He was testing Paul's calling. And I think this was a gift to Paul. Because in the midst of your suffering, when your calling has been tested, you can look back to those times of testing and say, yes, God indeed called me to this so I can endure. And the other thing I think was happening is that God was preparing the church. It's it's really hard to think of a a current example of what Paul would have been like in the life of the church in those days. He was a towering figure. 
He, beside the Lord Jesus Christ himself, was probably the towering figure. Can you imagine this little anemic movement that's starting to spread throughout the world, losing its main uh, confidant, losing its main preacher, losing its main leader? And I think that the church of Jesus Christ needed to know that Paul's calling had been tested and it had been confirmed and he was being constrained and he was being made to suffer by the will of God. And if they could know that, then they could give themselves over to the will of God. And this is why they said finally to Paul, fine, the Lord's will be done, God be with you. Some of them actually left with him from Caesarea and they traveled down with him to Jerusalem to the house of a guy named Mason who was an early convert of Cyprus, which you can see is that island right up there. And you may remember from earlier sermons that Cyprus was Paul's first stop on his first missionary journey. So it may be that Paul even won this guy to Christ, but whatever it is, this guy Mason opened up his heart and opened up his home to Paul. And while he was in Jerusalem, at least at the beginning, this is where Paul stayed. And next week, we'll pick the story up there and talk about what happened in the city of Jerusalem. For now, I'd like to ask you to turn your attention to chapter 20, verse 24. If you could look there with me. I really think this is the key to understanding this whole section, and this is why I named the message what I did today. There Paul said that he did not care about the details of his life, but that really all he wanted to do was to finish his race, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's the phrase I really want to highlight. Whether Paul was in Ephesus whether he was in Macedonia, whether he was down in Corinth, whether he was at Troas or Miletus or Tyre or Caesarea or now Jerusalem, wherever Paul went, the heartbeat of his life is that he wanted to testify to the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. This was the centering uh, piece of Paul's life. Everything he did revolved around this. And the reason that I want to draw our attention to this is because I believe that every true church, and in, in our own way, every true believer should have this as our mission as well. Each part should play a different part, but central to all of our parts is this, a passion to testify to the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. Churches, as they exist over a period of years, have to involve themselves in many things. And I pray that God would give us grace to feed the poor and, and, and care for those who are imprisoned and to be with those who are weak and need help. I pray that we would engage in lots of different things in the life of this church. Even this spring, we have an outreach that's focused on the unborn. And amen, may we rise up in the power of the Spirit of God and protect the most vulnerable human beings in our society right now. May we do that. But beloved, may we never forget that the thing that makes the church the church is that we exist to testify to the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Frankly, other people can show mercy, but the, but the church exists to testify to Jesus, to point to Jesus. This should be the focal point of our lives. So if you have the gift of evangelism, I want to encourage you to go out onto the streets and be bold. Don't hold back. Don't shrink back. Don't be afraid. Testify to the gospel of the grace of God in Christ in our city. And maybe God will even send you among the nations. Let him fan your gift into flame and do what God has called you to do. If, like me, you have a gift of teaching or of preaching, may you mainly testify to the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. You know that as a church, we just work our way through books of the Bible. And hopefully, we'll be faithful to every subject that the Bible touches upon. But also, hopefully, we will show how every subject in the Bible ultimately relates to Jesus Christ. Hopefully, we won't degrade to just preaching moralistic sermons, but that they will always be Christ-centered and Christ-saturated sermons. Tim Keller loves to say, let Jesus Christ be the hero of every text and the ultimate point of every truth. And if you have the gift of teaching, and I know a bunch of you do, make that your aim in your teaching. Testify to the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Some of us have gifts of singing and of of musicianship. May you sing for the glory of Jesus Christ. 
May you have a desire to be in his presence and to see his glory and to savor his glory and to spread his glory throughout the earth. May God free you from fleshly desires to make much of yourselves. May God free you from fleshly fear of wondering what what are people thinking about me right now or oh no, I missed a chord, now what are they thinking? Let all that slip out of your mind. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ and have this as your singular aim that in my singing, In my plaguing, I will testify to the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. I pray that you musicians and singers will pray regularly. Oh God, empower me to lead your people to see your glory. If you have gifts of mercy, then indeed be merciful. Visit those who are in prison. Touch those who are sick. Feed the hungry. Clothe the naked. Give water to the thirsty. Do it, but do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Let it be the mercy of Jesus flowing through you that flows to those people. And then when God opens the door to say why you're doing what you're doing, be bold and point to Jesus. Years ago, Kim and I had a privilege to be on a a team with Habitat for Humanity where we went into a neighborhood and painted an entire neighborhood in one day. And our little crew was given one house, and since I have painting experience, I was the leader of that little crew. And in one day, we painted a whole house from top to bottom. At the end of the day, we're sitting out in the backyard, and it was a Mexican family, and there were four generations of people living inside this family. So you had great-grandpa, grandpa, dad, and sons, plural. And we're gathered out there in the back afterwards. They're feeding us out of thanksgiving to us. And the great-grandpa just asks me, why are you doing this? And man, it was just a wide-open door for the gospel. And so without being inappropriate, I just told him very honestly, Jesus Christ has been merciful to us, so we're here to be merciful to you. If you have gifts of mercy, then be merciful, but testify to the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. That's why you live. That's why you're gifted. If you have gifts of intercession, and I know that some of you do, then let your prayers be pleading prayers that the gospel of the grace of God would go forward in this church and in this city and in the world. The Bible invites you to lift up your own cares before the Lord. It invites you to lift up the practical cares of other people. In fact, it says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. So I think it's a sin not to let your practical needs be known to the Lord, but I'm just saying don't stop there. Keep praying and keep praying and keep pressing and keep supporting the work of the gospel of the grace of God as it goes forward into the city. Maybe God would use your, your prayers to empower his people. Oh, beloved, I could multiply so many examples, but I trust you get the point. At the center of all of our giftings, at the center of all of our callings is this compelling desire to lift up Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of God's grace in our city and among the nations. And I pray that like Paul, we would feel consumed by this. I pray that we would feel deep passion for this so that we would care not for our comforts or even for our lives, but that we will give all for his glory and the good of others. Let's pray now that God would help us. And I'm just gonna be silent for a minute, let the Lord speak to you and then I will pray. Father, we do not trust in ourselves, but we do trust in the great and powerful blood of Jesus Christ that not only saves, but also sanctifies his people all the way to the end. And I pray that now that the word has been spoken, I pray that you would use your word to shape your people. I pray that you would focus us. I pray that you would fuel us. I pray that you would fire us up to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Oh, Lord. May we live for your glory and for the good of our city, for the good of the nations. May we live to exalt the name of Jesus Christ in the world. Father, I thank you for hearing my prayer. I thank you for the fact that this is your work, and I thank you for using us for the glory of your name and the good of others. It's in Jesus' name, great and gracious, that we pray. Amen.